Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I am not joined at the moment by my dashing, indomitable dear friend, Pete. Um, He's got a lot on his plate, you know, barricading himself in his compound in Vegas or whatever it is he's doing. But uh, (laughs) on a lighter note, we're joined by a repeated guest of the pod. Um, You might say even a friend of the pod. Riley Quinn. Welcome, Riley. Hello, Connor. How's it going? I'm doing great, man. Um, Riley is, for those who don't know, one of the hosts of the Trash Future podcast. And in happier times, he's a man about town over there in London. London, England, not London, Ontario. But with him, it could be either. No one ever actually remembers there's a London in Ontario. It has an Oxford Street. It has a Thames. It has everything that London has as well, except it has Canadians from Southern Ontario, which is, in fact, the American Midwest in every culturally meaningful way. Toronto is Chicago. London, Ontario is Columbus, Ohio. All of these things are completely true and you can't argue with it. (laughs) Riley, perhaps I think one of these days we might have to do an entire episode where Riley explains Ontario to me. Since I did, I, I was born like, you know, a stone's throw from Ontario. And when I went to preschool and kindergarten or listening to radio shows from Windsor, Ontario on the way there because um, I'm from Michigan. But <laughs> well, look, I'll, I'll do a brief uh, explainer of Ontario before we get into what we're talking about today. Right. A lot of people like to say that Toronto is the New York of Canada. This is wrong. Toronto is the Chicago of Canada. Canada does not have a New York. That is because Toronto is a Great Lakes city. Uh, It primarily works on uh, commodities exchanges, much like Chicago does. Um, It doesn't have a river. Yeah, it has a lakefront, much like Chicago does. Um, And it it has an enormous inferiority complex next to New York specifically, much like Chicago does. And it's populated primarily by guys in their 50s who never stop being frat bros. So if you want to go somewhere where you could possibly um, not have someone actually fight you, but have someone uh, puff up their chest and threaten to fight you while somehow being 45 years old, but dressed like a frat boy with a backwards baseball cap, yet somehow making $200,000 a year, Toronto is definitely your place. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a blast. And honestly, we're like supposed to go visit, uh, speaking of friends of the show, we're supposed to go visit Peter Watts up there at some point. That is so if, awesome. You know, borders ever open around the world again. I, I know. I'm supposed to go in, in August and I'm going to I'm gonna try to leverage that connection to meet Peter Watts because Blindsight's probably my favorite book in, ever. All right. Well, you know, we never know what might be converging here between mm. our two pods. Um, Indeed. But, you know, everyone, we promised uh, that we were not going to do a bunch of sort of plague or apocalypse or dystopia themed um, content, 
you know, for the near future. So we have some fun books coming up. Uh, some are darker than others. Some are more whimsical. We've got a lot planned for you. Uh, Riley and I were talking about, we're tossing around some ideas and he has some interesting ideas about a particular kind of optimistic science fiction and the impact that it's had on the real world, specifically what he and his trash future colleagues specialize in, which is the tech industry and particular tech plutocrats. Like we know that Elon Musk and Peter Thiel uh, both are big science fiction fans in their way. I think though, and I mean, to be clear, this is about optimism. Um, it's mm-hmm. about the sort of the striving of science fiction, but us being us, we can't just like douse you in sort of heedless, uh, you know, space age, like genuine optimism. We have to look at it critically. And I think that what Riley's going to bring us is, you know, over the next little while here, a very critical look at how a particular kind of science fiction optimism from the 70s developed and is filtered into our current tech overlords. Am I characterizing this right, Riley? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Although the weird thing is it didn't start as something that was thought about as science fiction. It started as something that was being considered at the time hard science and was only later revealed to be science fiction by reality. Um, <laughs> so the person I want to focus on today, because again, in my as is my want whenever I come on to Podside Picnic, I always sort of make a whole bunch of notes about something I find particularly interesting and then just rant about it for a while. Um, so I'm talking today about a guy specifically called Gerard K, the K standing for kitchen. Interesting enough, middle name, O'Neill. Um, and some of you may know who the who this is. He gave his name to something called O'Neill Cylinders, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, but he was a physicist, and he taught at Princeton. And he was born in the 1920s, and it was the 1970s when he really had his big popular moment. Um, and what happened was, it was the 1970s, we just landed on, the, or America had just landed on the moon, um, and was now thinking like, okay, what next? What, we've done this great thing, what can we do next? And O'Neill, uh, th- through several papers, which I've quoted from, and a book called The High Frontier, came up with this idea for permanent human habitation in space. Like, okay, we've gone there, how are we going to go the rest of the way? And he wasn't just some guy. He was, and he wasn't just some even professor spouting a bunch of theories. He was consulting in seminars with NASA, like at the highest level throughout the entirety of the 1970s. He was taken very seriously as a public intellectual. Uh, Isaac Asimov loved him and relentlessly promoted his work. Um, And all of this kept going until interest in what he had to say waned in the 1980s. But Here's the connection to the modern tech plutocrats. He was also Jeff Bezos's lecturer at Princeton. Hmm. And, <laughs> and O'Neill's writing about uh, how humans could live in space, has as it, it had its first attempt at becoming real throughout the 1970s, trying to get funding to go up and build these things called O'Neill cylinders that people would live in. That never really worked. And so the idea just died for a long time until Bezos is now trying to do it again with all of his Amazon money through uh, a company called Blue Origin. So the idea is fucking back. So, okay, I know you're going to explain this in depth, but what you're saying to me is that Jeff Bezos had this particular professor at Princeton 
uh, I guess Bezos was in college in what the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. And Ger- Gerard O'Neill. And you're yeah. saying that this guy had this wacky kind of rendezvous with Rama esque idea that you're going to get into. And it's ridiculous and was sort of accepted to be ridiculous decades ago, but because Jeff Bezos has more money than God, he can just unilaterally decide that this is actually still a good idea and that he's going to do it. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I want to, but this is weird, right? We're talking about this on a science fiction podcast, but this is for all intents and purposes, a set of academic papers and then an academic monograph. Uh, why does it really belong in a science fiction podcast? Well, so in order to explain why that is, there's this concept in science fiction uh, that was introduced by this theorist called Darko Suvin, uh, who was a sort of in the tradition of Bertolt Brecht. And he called it what well, he's wanted to say, OK, well, what's distinctive about science fiction as a genre of writing versus like fantasy? And he said that science fiction was based on this concept called cognitive estrangement and something called the novum. So, from the Dictionary of Critical Theory, the definition of cognitive estrangement is the presence in the story or novel of a device or machine that is absolutely new and whose presence compels us to imagine a different way of conceiving our world. This device or thing is the novum. So, sci-fi literature is estranging because it's different, separated, and alien from our world and our experience of it, but that estrangement is cognitive rather than necessarily dramatic because it's based on you accepting this novum, this new technology, this alien, this whatever, that is explained in terms that make sense within our understanding of reality. So, referencing that Blindsight episode, what makes the vampires in Blindsight a novum rather than something fantasy is that they're explained with reference to genetics and uh, genetic engineering rather than there are vampires because of magic. Um, So, how we apply this, I think, to what Gerard O'Neill wrote is that it is, in fact, a form of science fiction because of, and then we'll get into why this is so ludicrous, he, I, I read his papers and this monograph, and I see a man telling a story specifically to allay the anxieties of the 1970s, the, the sort of extended stagflation, the wor- worries of the, um, the, 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 U, the U.S. sort of beginning to having experienced the horrors of the Vietnam War, um, and wanting to talk about a utopia as though it were graspable. And but the problem is it was fictional. It was the idea of making, so I've mentioned these things, O'Neill cylinders, they're essentially space stations that are built to be paradise. The idea that that can just be real, the way the, the idea that you could overcome that complexity, the idea that you could just wish it into reality is in fact, uh, uh, sort of ignoring the fact that, yes, this is estranging, this is fantasy, this is something that has been not invented in the way of normal scientific discovery, but dreamed up to tell a story. And it's now, there are sort of airheaded billionaires, specifically Bezos, but Musk as well, with you imagine what he has to do to make Mars habitable. It's being, these fantasies are being chased after, sort of like someone running after a rainbow, but running after a rainbow in like a billion dollar supercar, in effect. Right. And with enough money, throughout this over enough time to start to make it look kind of legitimate, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, also a lot of these, a lot of these billionaire 
space programs are largely marketing operations and public subsidy funnels. So especially SpaceX uh, with Elon Musk. I mean, it is just a way for him to get a lot of money from um, that. Well, that would be going to fund NASA, but now is now going to fund like public private partnerships and stuff um, or green energy subsidies and so on to, to try to make this dream of a sustainable human presence in space a reality. But let's um, let's talk about what O'Neill w- was writing about specifically. And it was how to colonize space, not by going to planets, but by building these O'Neill cylinders. So I'm going to read a selection from his 1976 book, The High Frontier. The idea is to create cylinder-shaped structures in outer space and give them enough of a spin that residents on the inner surface of the cylinder would live their lives in Earth-style gravity. The habitat's interior would be illuminated either by reflected sunlight or sun-like artificial light. And uh, this is actually from an interview with O'Neill and Asimov, and this is um, describing the Model 4. So we did many models, later called Islands, which is the design for the largest space station. It's possible, he said, to have a rapid growth in living standards for people not on Earth or another planet, but in a habitat built in free space at a distance from here similar to the distance of the moon. The reason for that is that it is possible to make Earth-like habitats out of ordinary materials like steel, aluminium, and glass, and it is possible to find those materials on the moon as well as from asteroids later on. So, Connor, this sounds pretty reasonable and not just totally <laughs> fictitious, right? I love that he threw in the like, oh, and maybe later on we'll just get it from an asteroid. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> um, it's like it's uh, if you just think about that for a moment, the idea of what that we're going to send people to the moon to mine steel and aluminium and then make glass out of sand. And we're going to do that enough to build a space station that 20,000 people could live on sustainably. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of problems with that, obviously. I mean, it. it <laughs> What have you? I'm going to ask you this. Have you read Rendezvous with Rama? I've not. So Rendezvous with Rama is an Arthur C. Clarke novel that we already sort of panned on this show. And I feel a little bit bad about it because it is actually very interesting from sort of an engineering uh, and astrophysics point of view. But it's about discovering um, a cylinder much like this that happens to be extraterrestrial. And it's like as far as they can tell when when it enters sort of near not quite near Earth or not doesn't enter Earth orbit, but it's in our solar system. Um, humans start to explore it, and it seems at first to be deserted, but it's clearly been um, sent by a you know a different civilization. But anyway, like I don't know. I think that Rendezvous with Rama. Um, I think I want to say like late sixties. So it's okay. First things first. It's possible that O'Neill was ripping this off Martha C. Clarke. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think they're they're absolutely. It, it's possible that he was. I think it actually. I think. I did see this this mentioned. I believe, yeah, that either that was parallel invention or he was ripping it off. But what O'Neill did was he thought through exactly, okay, what are the steps we would need to take to make this be able to work? And anyone who knows anything about doing something complex knows that doing it in space is like, like that there are entire, like NASA has entire like, um, uh, 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 like binders and binders on like how to operate a screwdriver in space. <laughs> right. right? Uh, the idea of, of not just of building in, of building in, of building one of these things in space as, uh, as O'Neill was talking about is, 
is he needed to say, okay, let's work his work it out step by step as though working it out step by step would make it any less of a fantasy. That'd be like saying, well, look, if you want to sprout wings yourself and fly, what you have to do is you have to sit down um, and then you have to undergo this very, you have to um, concentrate very hard on getting wings. And uh, then maybe you might want to get someone to attach wings to you. And then, of course, you're going to want to flex the muscles that are attached to the wings. And it's like, well, that might be a step-by-step process of how to fly without having sprouted wings. But that doesn't mean that that's actually going to work. It just has the appearance of rigor. Um, it's, it's scientism as opposed to science. And yeah. By the way, just, I looked it up, just to interrupt, I want to say that Rondé yeah. with Rama came out in 73, so it was kind of parallel. So nobody, yeah. Gerard O'Neill's estate, don't sue me for saying he ripped off Clark, but it is in the same line of reasoning. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yes. So, because if you think about it, right, the idea is, okay, we're living in a cylinder, but we need the cylinder to have gravity. So, of course, there's going to have to be a freeze, uh, there's going to have to spin, right? And so, it's like, well, okay, you could, in theory, you could say, well, yes, of course, we're going to have the cylinder spin and it'll be fine, it'll be reasonable, etc. Um, but that's just going, but the, I get the idea that you can just sort of do that on the basis of mining a bunch of shit from the moon is very, 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 very funny. And I think it's not very difficult to see the cognitive estrangement there. The idea of, well, let's, that is actually quite alienating because it's so, it's just so impossible to conceive of as working when you think about any of the practicalities that go into it. And believe me, they have been gone through. So we're going to read some of the criticisms of this idea later. Um, but let's, uh, I'm going to go through a, a, lo- a slightly longer paragraph. This is from one of the papers that he wrote where he describes this in more detail. So remember, this is what, what, this, what, this, what this paragraph does is it, it looks like a, an, a, a description of a process of how you build something like this. It looks like you're explaining something when what you're actually doing is you're obfuscating the fact that it's impossible with scientific sounding language. So let's, let's go. The geometry of each space community is fairly closely defined if all of the following conditions are required. Normal gravity, normal day and night cycle, natural sunlight, an Earth-like appearance, efficient use of solar power and materials, and so on. The most effective geometry satisfying all these conditions appears to be a pair of nested cylinders. The economics of efficient use of materials tends to limit their size to about 4 miles in diameter, and perhaps about 16 miles in length. See figure 1. Within these cylinder pairs, the entire land area is devoted to living space, parkland, and forest. With lakes, rivers, grass, trees, animals, and birds, an environment like the most attractive parts of Earth, agriculture is carried on elsewhere, of course. The circumference is divided into alternating strips of land area called valleys and window area, solars. The rotation period is two minutes, and the cylinder axes are always pointed towards the sun. Um, so... Let's see, so just think, <laughs> reflect on that for just a sec. We're, we're, we have an entire ecosystem in this thing now? Yeah, I mean, as one of them, um, I think when Bezos was actually announcing Blue Origin to get ahead of ourselves a little bit, uh, one of my friends on Twitter did a thread where he's basically just like, this whole theory of like recreating ecosystems in space, you just have no idea how complex an ecosystem is. Like, you're going to be like, oh, wait, we forgot this one type of bacteria that needs to exist to break down the waste products in this ecosystem. And now we are hosed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, oh no, we included one too many apex predators. Yeah. And whoops. Well, I guess everyone's dead. <laughs> He's like, if you have, let's say, 
if you're there, let's say, I don't know, you have like, um, I don't know, a, a crop or whatever, right? Like the planting, I don't know, figs. Uh, fuck it, I'm not sure. And you have like an ibex that happens to like figs, and you don't know that that likes figs. Or you take two animals and you put them, put them in, put them in there, and they act, and they like one ends up predating on another one that you didn't expect it to, ends up massively overpopulating, and then you have like fifty wolves or what have you, like it's not like you get to try that again. You don't get a second. You don't get a gimme. You're as far from earth as the moon and you only have what you've brought with you. <laughs> well, what if you could find more wolves on the asteroid? Yeah. Of course. Oh, yeah. You could, because that's, that's the thing. Like anytime these people, these fucking doofuses, whether it was O'Neill in the seventies or Bezos and Musk and all these morons now, their answer to everything is always asteroid mining, asteroid mining, asteroid mining, asteroid mining, as though the solution to not only the problems of a, um, probably deeply unequal because it's being invented by the world's richest morons, uh, space society is not enough minerals. It's as though they have basically had their brains poisoned by Starcraft in particular. <laughs> That's a great thought. I hadn't heard that one before, that it might yeah. all be Starcraft's fault, ultimately. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, no, we just need to get more Vespine gas that will solve poverty. Um, but also, that's the other thing. It's just the confidence the confidence with which it said, well, of course, the rotation period will be two minutes, um, and the cylinder axis will be pointed to the sun. So, dust hands off theatrically, we can move on. Um, and so I think that's, if we think of science fiction in the way that Darko Suvin talks about it, right, we can think about it as like, yeah, this is, this, he's just describing a novum. He's describing something that's actually been in a ton of sci-fi already. It's been in 2001. It's been in Interstellar. It's been in Halo. That's just, just some more, a couple more recent things. So like, it's, 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 it is something that is much more at home in science fiction, even though it was taken very seriously in the 70s and simply because of massive inequality is being taken very seriously now, even though nobody thinks it should except Jeff Bezos and, of course, his lackeys. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty wild. So, I mean, um, you know, I, you, you posit that where does O'Neill's thing come from initially like what what is his deal sort of politically and otherwise why did he come up with all of this well so o'neill you cannot th this story right this idea that we can have this land of infinite plenty if we just build it for ourselves cannot be extricated from the overlapping crises that were facing america in the 1970s um in addition to, like I was saying, like the, the loss, like lo staggering losses in Vietnam, uh, the assassination of Kennedy, um, the sort of general loss of innocence of the 1960s of the massive, massive energy crisis. The fact that like the, there was, everything was very stagnant, but the dollar was massively inflating. Like it was not it was, the U.S. was in a sort of massive doldrums. This was the era of malaise. And if you think about the story O'Neill was telling, it's extraordinarily utopian uh, for a political story to be told in that time. The O'Neill cylinder was basically the novum, as you know, Suvin would call it, in a story that solved the problems of the 1970s. Um, and in fact, this is, again, something I took from a paper O'Neill wrote in 74. 
If we begin to use it soon enough, he wrote, and if we employ it wisely, at least five of the most serious problems now facing the world can be solved without recourse to repression. One, bringing every human being up to a living standard now enjoyed only by the most fortunate. Two, protecting the biosphere from damage caused by transportation and industrial pollution. Three, finding high-quality living space for the world's population that is doubling every 35 years. Four, finding clean, practical energy sources. And five, preventing overload of Earth's heat balance. So th- those are five crucial problems. But this the idea that we can just build our way out of it is one that would have appealed to someone in the 1970s who was being, who experienced that rupture with the sort of ideal of the 50s and 60s. Right. Well, it, and I think also what he's doing there is a very familiar thing in tech plutocrat narratives, which is pointing towards broadly and vaguely a lot of the good outcomes of socialism without actually, you know, socialism. <laughs> of course. We're like, it's um, because if you look at like, well, bringing every human being up to a living standard now enjoyed only by the most fortunate. Well, yeah, and I, sure, of course, that's a great, that's a great idea. But going into space uh, in theory means you that no one has to lose out on that transaction. No rich person has to give anything up to anybody because we can just go get more. And then there's always this unstated assumption that if we go get more, the people with capital won't just hoard it all, continue hoarding it all for themselves. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, a, there's a reason that like, you know, like that uh, the discovery of uh, well, discovery. I say the the conquest of America by the Europeans, like it it didn't lead to like the average Spaniard becoming much richer. It led to the king and queen and aristocrats becoming insanely like the richest pe- some of the richest people in history. You know, it's it's these discoveries of so called untapped resources. They don't. It, it the, the effect isn't it isn't equalizing. The effect is massive enrichment for the discoverer. Uh, or or conqueror or exploiter, and so I think that's another that's another little bit of, that's that and that's the fiction that Bezos is now telling, because Bezos is telling this same story uh, from Blue Origin, a in a much more clownishly incompetent way, which we'll get to towards the end, but b in a world where the problem, the the thing that you can't get away from is inequality. And, and as well as climate change and so on, but all of these things are caught, we sort of have a very clear idea that they're caused by, um, they're caused by a small number of massive polluters and they keep doing that because they're massively rich than everyone and there's no one who can really stop them. And, you know, the, the idea that we can just, well, we can go into space and that will all stop. You know, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Bezos's idea is saying, "Look, while Earth, we can just turn into a large university campus and put all the heavy industry in space." Uh, so he sort of almost flips O'Neill's idea on its head a little bit, which is, "Well, we'll just launch O'Neill cylinders full of all the heavy industry and turn Earth into a park or university," uh, which is literally what he said. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> first of all, I didn't know Bezos said that. That's hilarious, and, and I think it says it's very telling, right? Because like. One of the things that I've noted, um, like living in a fossil fuel state for much of my life, Wyoming, is that like <laughs> it's, it's not this simple frictionless matter of like we go to like we always go to like the most inherently organically profitable place to extract fossil fuels. False. Like polities create the environment in which it's profitable to extract fossil fuels from, um, you know, parts of their own 
uh, domestic territory, even when it creates environmental damage and all kinds of costs in that territory for all kinds of complex reasons. Because again, like markets don't exist organically. They happen through policy and through power. And you and I know that, but like Mm -hmm. all of these fantasies need to sort of be like, well, if we could just punt on this, like we would all just choose not to do anything polluting on earth as if that's really the problem already is that like, well, we have no choice but to do all these terrible things. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if we want to, if we want to sort of really, really sort of almost belabor that point, it's that for all of these people, especially the billionaires and it's, they use it as PR in the story they tell, which is my billions are not a problem because when we go to space, everyone can be a billionaire. Right. And, exactly. <laughs> and, and it is whether and whether it is, um, you know, Elon Musk's reusable rocket or Gerard O'Neill's fantasy magical space dildos there. All of these things serve to tell the same story, which is there are intractable problems here that are going to result in conflict that where someone is going to have to lose out for this problem to be solved. Eventually, we can't keep kicking this can down the road unless we go to space. And it's a story, it's a comforting story that says that all of these problems are just technical ones. They're just technical ones that we have to get around. We don't really have to solve poverty. We don't have to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. You don't have to do any of that. All we have to do is strip mine the moon and build a giant tube that faces the sun and rotates 20,000 times or whatever every two minutes so it simulates Earth-like gravity and also put like balanced ecosystems on each one. What's so difficult about that? As though that's more reasonable <laughs> than, say, you know, just building some more solar panels. Yeah, I mean, and it does. I think there's two succinct things going on here. One is that, as you've you've already said, like essentially, it resolves. It's an attempt to resolve the contradictions of capitalism by fleeing them, or at least transporting them into this new zone. But then somehow transporting them will resolve them, which doesn't make any sense, as you just said. And also, like, there's something very deeply religious about this. It's very. Mm. It feels like a pagan religion where if we, you know, if we help Pharaoh build a nice enough tomb here here on earth then we will all somehow be rewarded in an indeterminate future <laughs> i mean it's almost literally jonestown at this point <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah every, every year that because like as we as alice likes to often say on our show we have like what 10 years of climate left nine like the longer we don't you know, the longer like that, that allow that state of affairs is allowed to continue the state of affairs that keeps the climate ticking down, then the more we basically are Jonestown and <laughs> stories like the billionaires are going to go to space and do asteroid mining and build space stations and none of these problems will be problems. It's quite a bit like you're right. It's quite a bit like a religious, like a, like a, like, a, like a, it's quite a bit like a religion of, of just, it's a, here's a new um, comprehensive worldview that sort of elides all of these problems that we're talking about. And I think what makes it so interesting for the concept of Podside Picnic, Podside Picnic is that this is specifically a science fiction one. <laughs> um, I have some more quotes if, you're, if you are at all interested. Please. So this one actually isn't from Gerard O'Neill. This is from Isaac Asimov from an interview that, um, that I sent you that we watch. Um, so this is Asimov talking about how you'll induce people to get on these spaceships that definitely won't just be gigantic sarcophaguses orbiting the Earth because you get like one beetle gets on that's not supposed to be there. 
we'll get people to go in the same way we got people to populate the American West because they'll want to go. It'll represent a new life, an escape from Earth. Once people go, once you do realize that you have the kind of life there which represents a security and pleasantness, the difficulty won't be in getting people to go, but making them line up to go in an orderly fashion. If you give mankind a grand vision of society in space, something huge we can do together, the notion of fighting wars over real estate on Earth becomes a little too ridiculous to take seriously. <laughs> so a new life awaits you in the off-world colonies. <laughs> but make it utopian. <laughs> um because that it's it's very it's very because like if you th- I, I often talk about this right on on trash future, which is that capital requires a frontier, it requires a frontier somewhere, um, and that in the nineteenth century that frontier was geographical, where basically you could push out the contradictions. So like you could um, you could put you could push out labor you could bring in free resources you could capture free labor as the we did in the 19th century you know you could and you could keep the citizens of the polity the people who sort of count ticking over you could squeeze that uh gap between um between wages and prices you could keep you could just keep that ticking over and when there was no more geography to go to and you know there was and there was some decolonization um then all that, and then especially in the 1970s, that flipped and we started pushing the frontier further in time. So with the collapse of Bretton Woods and the growth of a financialized world economy, then our frontier became the future as everything became financialized and everything was uh, borrowed against and risk managed and so on. But that hadn't quite happened yet. And that's, I think that's a quite that that's it's not a coincidence that O'Neill called his his book The High Frontier. It's not a coincidence that Asimov compared it to the American West. It was that this idea that is look, we need to keep growing in some direction. And the reason actually that interest in O'Neill's work waned in the nineteen eighties is that in the nineteen eighties the, the or at least the readers this is my pet theory, is that in the nineteen eighties there was a collective move to say, okay, we're financializing. We're not going to go explore and dig up minerals on the moon. We realized we can just make up the money. We don't need to do this. It's going to be very inefficient. But it needed that utopia. It needed to imagine that there was this frontier that we could move to because there was so... It was because we were so riven by malaise at home. It was this nice thing to dream of. And I think it's the reason that then... The reason I compare this decade with the 1970s so often uh, in general is that just as in the 1970s, the sort of ordinary manufacturing capitalism collapsed um, and it gave us this sort of stagflation crisis, we've seen the collapse of finance capitalism in 2008 um, here. And so we need to reinvent a frontier again, because wherever there's a frontier, there's always someone who is interested in making you go work for them beyond it. You yes, get my meaning. Absolutely. I think that's a very well said. Um, I'm going to steal some of that for my thoughts about frontier as a, as a sort of Western writer, but let's, mm-hmm. let's go. I want to go ahead to Bezos. Like what, cause you've got some, you're not just speculating. Like Bezos has talked about this, right? Yes. Yeah. He has absolutely talked about this. Um, but I, I want to do what, one more quick thing about, about O'Neill and then go to Bezos, which is that, um, 
this is I want to do one thing because I, I want I don't want you to think that this is or your support your listeners to think that all of my criticisms are just mine. Uh, I, I want to have a little clip from the National Space Society, which published which summarizes some responses to his book in um, 1981, which was called 2081, a hopeful view of the human future. Um, the idea of space settlements began to seem unreasonably far-fetched to his critics, and it was deemed to be too optimistic and futuristic, even among his supporters and fans. Uh, And it bears mentioning that by 81, the grim realities of the 70s, like gas lines, oil crises, inflation, pollution, and the constant threat of nuclear annihilation, uh, was replaced by a Reagan-era city-on-a-hill optimism. And O'Neill's visions were seen as irrelevant and tinged with uh, sort of hippie-esque utopianism. And so it was, I'm not just inventing all of this. This is sort of was the consensus at the time as well. Um, so it's, uh, it, it really, it, it, this is, it's his, this really is sort of like a set story, which I felt it's just very interesting to me. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk Bezos. So this is a quote from Bezos. We get to see Gerard O'Neill's visions, st- ideas start to come to life and many of the other ideas from science fiction. The dreamers always come first. It's always the sci-fi guys. They think of everything first, then the builders come along and they make it happen. But it takes time. So what do you think of that idea? What do I think of it as someone who does a science fiction podcast? Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that the science fiction guys think of everything first, then the builders come along and make it happen. I think, I wish I had Pete here for this, but I think my first thought is that in order to have that view of science fiction or any other storytelling, you have to locate the stories you're interested in a very particular historical context. And obviously we've situated O'Neill as someone who was an heir to Asimov, an heir to one of the great golden age, um, you know, the the golden age of being both in a sense optimistic, but also arguably, you know, fascistic, certainly imperialistic um, and all the other other things. And of course, O'Neill is friends with Asimov. He's treated as some kind of intellectual heir to Asimov, which is ironic because again, the claim is that O'Neill is not writing science fiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the point, the point is that like Bezos clearly like I, that's, that's despite Bezos being a contemporary guy, very much still alive. Um, he, this is not a guy who has read Ursula Le Guin or Octavia Butler. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think probably not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or if he has, he's hiding it very well in that quote. <laughs> Because, well, because like the, the vision that he has of science fiction is so he would not say that it's imperialist, right? He wouldn't necessarily say that it's capitalistic because part of the, the fiction of Bezos is like he has that sort of long term clock or whatever in his mountain. Like he loves to think of himself as sort of beyond the historical arc of capitalism, which is, of course, nonsense because he's the ultimate capitalist and would would not be special without capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he the idea is he is um, is the, I think one of the, uh, the these guys are not. When I say they're morons, I mean, I don't mean that they're like not functionally smart. They're very clever. They managed to make themselves like quite a bit of money. It's when I say they're morons, I mean is that they can solve everything but the problems. Uh, they can solve every problem but themselves. So they, they they've identified Bezos has identified, for example, that there are cr- crucial problems with uh, this sort of infinite requirements for growth on Earth. It just it can't happen. Like that's not possible. And he has very keenly solved lots of problems with logistical networks. He's understood which public, um, which public goods he can piggyback off of, like the various global postal services and so on. Like he's in, in terms of becoming a billionaire, he's very good at it, probably the best. But 
it, it, I, and I don't think that his desire to go to space is even um, a, a a bad faith one. I think he genuinely knows that there are systemat- systemic problems with um, you know infinite growth on a finite planet. And I think he really wants to solve it, but he's unable to or unwilling to, or I mean, I don't know if I were in his position, I'd probably be quite unwilling to um, see that the problem is the system that put himself, that put him in the position as the main solver of that problem. That that capacity for self-reflection isn't there. Right. Um, Right. And I think you made a really key point there, there, which is that I think there is a lot of good faith in a sense there is a set of good intentions in someone like Elon Musk and in someone like Jeff Bezos, Peter Thiel. I think he's more of like the, the nefarious foil to those guys, but like yeah. um, all three of those guys love science fiction. Um, and certainly Musk and Bezos view themselves as, you know, they, they actually do want to produce things that are useful. And they, they, even if it's a, just a selfish um, gratification that they get from it, I mean, you know, we've made fun of Elon Musk, but like, he does take great pleasure in doing things like buying a bunch of ventilators or starting to make ventilators when they're needed as, as irritating as he is about it. Like there is mm-hmm. these guys would love to see themselves as saviors. Um, and what, what, what annoys them more than anything, of course, is people like you and I coming along and very cleverly pointing out that they are the problem. <laughs> mm. Elon Musk actually, I don't think Bezos is annoyed by that. I think Elon Musk is actually annoyed by that, which is infinitely funny to me because he just can't stop posting. Right. Well, Bezos to his credit is not a poster. He's not online. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so I think they're not all annoyed by it. Elon Musk is. And that is something that for whatever reason, you, no one can ever take away from us unless he gets like a better therapist or something. Um, <laughs> I think I think, I think honestly, once a poster, always a poster. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Um, but like, I think it's if we think about this, right, like if Jeff Bezos has this irreconcilable problem with wanting to, with being unable to solve the problem that is himself, um, that's where we can come back into fiction. We can come back into inventing some far-fetched, bizarre um, tin can in space that says, okay, well, I don't need to self-reflect. I can still treat this as a technical rather than a political problem. And that's the point of, of the fiction. O'Neill cylinders were never a real possibility. They were a comforting story to tell in the 1970s. And ultimately, the arc of history went elsewhere. Um, and it's the same story Bezos is trying to tell today because the arc of history is back in a point where we haven't found that new frontier yet. You know, the financial frontier collapsed, uh, the physical frontier collapsed long ago, and we need a new one. And so, of course, they first think space. You know, it's, um, and of course, they want to tell that story. Uh, and so, uh, I, I have a little bit more on um, Bezos' space plans in particular. Yeah. So, for Musk, uh, this is taken from, again, several different. Um, articles. So for Musk, the prime driver behind settling people on Mars is to provide a backup plan for humanity in the event of a planet-wide catastrophe. For example, an asteroid strike, environmental ruin, or a species-killing pandemic. Cough, cough. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you. But also, like, let's let's not only talk about Bezos because Bezos is talking about something else. He's talking about infinite energy on a finite planet. Um, but let's also talk about Musk's fantasy as well, because Musk's fantasy is not building space stations. Musk's fantasy is settling Mars on the basis that there's no planet, there's no second planet, and if something happens that wipes all of humanity out on this planet, then Mars goes. But if we think about this. Environmental ruin, let's one of these examples, uh, environmental ruin is um, that's being created, the conditions for that are being created by the same conditions that allow Elon Musk to go to Mars. So why wouldn't those same conditions then operate on Mars and then we would just have two planets that where the habitat for humanity there is under threat by the tendency that caused us to go from one planet to the other? Yeah, like, also you're being... Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. I say you're being very smart about that. Um, and you're right. I would also add uh, it, that the people that you want to create your utopia on Mars are the very nice people who are not online and just go to their job as like a nurse or a school teacher every day. The extremely online psychos who would be wanting to go to Elon Musk's Mars colony would be the absolute worst people to create good social conditions. <laughs> well, it's like there's that liberty. It's in fact this even ha- this happens on Earth a little bit where you try to do these like ideal communities of libertarians in Chile. Um, they all there was a, there this happened. There was a there was a community of libertarians who all moved to Chile, and then I think there are still a couple of there, but they like seceded in like this mountaintop village, a bunch of Americans, and like they basically it descended into like bitter recriminations and them all accusing each other of being child molesters within like a week. <laughs> Correctly, in every case, I'm sure, <laughs> allegedly, in a hypothetical scenario. <laughs> um, but here's the other thing: the species killing pandemic. Sure. But what if the incubation period of that pandemic is, say, 14 to 21 days? Let's say someone gets on a spaceship and goes to Mars, doesn't know they're sick. They infect a bunch of Martians. Hey, hey, presto, there's your species killing killing pandemic on two planets. It might reduce the chances of that happening, but like certainly doesn't eliminate them. So how come we're we're saying we're going to go to space instead of, say, funding funding better and more universalized healthcare or building some more solar panels because the only thing really i think that elon musk's plan of doing two planets really protects us from is an asteroid strike and (laughs) i don't know are we willing to invest that much that much in like abstract asteroid insurance so that humanity doesn't get wiped out i don't care if humanity gets wiped out i'll be dead i might just yeah seriously (laughs) yeah i don't give a shit I mean, that's kind of like, like it, I was just going to say that on this show, we talked about I Am Legend, and I think that I keep bringing up I Am Legend because, like, it's the ultimate inversion of that power fantasy that, like, oh, well, no matter what happens, I must survive. And it's like, do you have any idea how unfun it would be to be the last survivor? <laughs> yeah, awful. Um, do you have any idea how, how much it would suck to, like, be a Mars col- Mars colonist after we get, like, maybe some two-way transportation going and then Earth is completely over? Like, oh God, I don't know. Well, right. You're, then you're being, you're being conquered by the worst people that survived, uh, on yeah. earth. Like, congrats. Uh, but, uh, but like, so, but let's, let's go back. Let's go. That's, that's Musk's plan. And again, it's, 
it's 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 science fiction. It's it's imagining that this is going to be possible and easy and you know not incredibly complex and not self defeating, and it will just be a solution to these problems that doesn't require any introspection. Bezos is much simpler. It's about humanity's need for energy and the idea of creating the conditions under like that Marx talks about about like how you'd be able to. In, in, in a socialist society, you can hunt in the morning, you can uh, be a, a writer in the evening, and so on and so forth. Um, but that the, the thing preventing us from doing this is a limited amount of energy. Again, very 1970s. But he says in an article, and in, in, in a presentation about Blue Origin last year, that the creation, that the, the sending humanity into space to live in these cans would result in, quote, a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Einsteins. Because those are the only <laughs> talented and smart people that uh, Jeff Bezos could think of. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, like that's like, why would you want a thousand? Oh, again, why do you want a thousand Mozarts? Like that's <laughs> just gonna want like, like, like uh, I'm declining knock music, but like a thousand times, or like, are you imagining that, you know, maybe the fact that lots of people have to work like 12 hour shifts in Amazon delivery centers means that they can't spend their time writing Ina Klein and Oct music Two or writing E equals MC squared two. I was going to say like, that's, that's the socialist repost is how many great yeah. composers are working in your warehouse right now. Mr. Bezos. Yes. Uh, and it's like, no, but if they were in space and they were like, you know, there was like a bull, a bullfrog pandemic on their space can, uh, you know, maybe they could invent some kind of, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to have time to do the next theory of relativity. They're dealing with a bullfrog pandemic on the space can. Like the, <laughs> they have no capacity to do math right now. They're too busy trying to avoid a catastrophic ecosystem, co- ecosystem collapse, like um, earth to moon distance from the nearest ability to get support for it yeah i mean anybody who's played late 90s windows 98 classic uh game sim safari where you have to engineer safari park knows that these are all these are all really there's it's hard to engineer an ecosystem is what i'm saying mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but you know uh if we get it all right then there can just be a, and he thinks that they're all going to be themed um all of the different uh, uh uh tin tin cans are going to have different themes so like there can be an old west one and an agricultural one and he literally said this and like and, and, and a music one <laughs> as as though that's like uh th- th- as though that that's just anything but just like like a kid having fun with an idea who's like annoying you at a dinner table just saying like and then one can be like the old west and then it will be like hawaii every day no rain no earthquakes it's gonna be like maui but forever and in space in a tin can yeah and i just love that he by the way he folded westworld with the different themed uh realities into his into his plan <laughs> yeah it's um, wild i, I just want to say that to, yeah go ahead no, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to do a quote, but yeah, hit, hit me with that. I'll do the quote after. I mean, yeah, I think we should just start like sliding to, towards home plate here. But like the, the thing that I really want to stress here is you laid out a really convincing case for why fiction, storytelling, the narrative arts really, really matter. Because we have a direct line here between Asimov and Gerard K. O'Neill, who's supposed to not be a storyteller, but you've, you've you know, persuasively made the case that he, in essence, was, despite also being an academic physicist. And then you have those guys with a direct lineage to the richest man on Earth, one of the most powerful men on Earth, 
who is putting billions of dollars into realizing these fantasies that come directly from a very particular lineage of science fiction storytelling. So, yeah. like, please never again tell me that the books we cover on our show don't matter. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, listeners to Podside Picnic. It does matter. He, and and the also to Connor's parents. Podside Picnic. <laughs> and to Connor's uh, family. Actually, uh, this is a STEM subject now. <laughs> um, That's right. If we're coming sliding into home, I'll leave us with, uh, with one quote. Uh, we need to go into space if we want to continue growing civilization, Bezos said. If you take baseline energy usage on Earth and compound it at just 3% per year for less than 500 years, you'd have to cover the entire Earth in solar cells, and that's just not going to happen. And you know what? He's right. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to happen. That's- the thing he said is not going to happen either, but that's also not going to happen. <laughs> Something else is going to have to happen. Yeah, I mean, as you said earlier, like to be clear, I don't think Jeff Bezos is stupid at all. I think this idea idea is stupid but you've explained why it's a fantasy it's a fairy tale but where it comes from makes perfect sense because it's the need as you said to sort of like solve the problems without solving the problem that is you and i love that you put it that way um Mm. i'm gonna steal all of this from you by the way (laughs) please do (laughs) i mean to be fair there is a record of me saying it then you saying you're gonna steal it so if i need to ever steal it back i think i've got a leg to stand on (laughs) You just, you, you would not believe the things we can do with audio editing these days. Really. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it's going to be like on like Homer Simpson on rock bottom. <laughs> That's a great reference. Is there anything yes. else you want to throw in here? I think, I think this is probably a good place no, to start this winding is re- down. But. We are, this is real tidy. We, you, yeah. you basically took everything I said and put a real, a really nice bow on it. I, I, I wouldn't want to add anything else. We'd be, I'd be reopening this wonderful wrapped present and untying your lovely bow. All right. Well, cool. I mean, first of all, you did a great job and thanks for coming on. Everyone go listen to Trash Future. Um, You can get more of Riley's insights, uh, more of his mellifluous Ontario accent. Hello. (laughs) And I'm sure we're going to have him back on the show at some point. Um, I would I would insist. I insist as well. So thanks a lot, man. This has been great. Hey, you know what else? Because this is this going on the free feed or is this an exclusive? We're going to make this one a free one because. okay. well, I I've done I've done this show two previous times and they're both Patreon exclusives. Even if only for the second one, please subscribe to Podside Picnic's Patreon and listen to the episode where Connor and I talk about um it's it's a much funnier episode. Terry Goodkind. We break we down about Terry Goodkind. Yeah, like the worst um, fantasy writer ever. It was great. The the worst fantasy writer of all time, and a guy who can only be described as um, a, an Ayn Rand ponytail guy who wrote a ripoff of the Wheel of Time series. Yeah, it's it was a really really fun episode. So check that one out. We also did one yeah. with on Warhammer 40k. Yeah, a long time ago that they can uh, find. Honestly, but. I have to say, I think the Terry Goodkind episode was probably some of the most fun I have ever had recording a podcast. So if you're listening to this. Go listen to that. G- give Connor some money and listen to that. Uh, Connor and Pete some money and listen to that. It's It was so much fun. You know what, folks? He's got a point. <laughs> listen uh, to the Patreon. <laughs> hell yeah. And uh, you know, check out uh, check out Trash Future. We're on wherever you find podcasts. Uh, well, uh, we got to get we got to get you and you or you and Pete on on Trash Future. Soon. I would love I'm to come on Trash we, Future. I'm I... conscious we haven't had you on yet, and I would like to mend that in short order. Yes, I think we can do that during this uh, these days of being inside all the time. At yeah, some wait, point, do you, do you not have much on? Because I, I don't have much on. <laughs> Me neither. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm, I'm totally open. Anyway, all right. Uh, it's really late in the UK, so I'm going to go to bed. But uh, thank you so much again for having me on. Um, it was a blast, as ever. Thanks so much, man. This is going to be great. Um, and thank you to our listeners once again. Have a good night, man. All right, later. Later.